Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 105, The Foundation of Lübeck. Now this week we'll look at one of the great mysteries of German medieval history. How Lübeck could become the second largest city in the Holy Roman Empire within just a hundred years of its foundation. Because Lübeck lies on a small river, the Trave, that goes into a small sea, the Baltic. And not only is the Baltic comparatively small, the people who live on its shores are no slouches. They've been famed for travelling as far south as Constantinople and as far north as Greenland for centuries. So how did Lübeck manage to grow so fast? We'll go through the different theories and maybe, maybe we can find out. But before we start, let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Catherine van B, Mr. F, Victor O and Rudy. Now last week, we took a good look at the county of Holstein and the beginnings of the great migration from the western parts of the empire into the lands north and east of the Elbe River. 200,000 people packed their bags and left the overcrowded cities and villages of Flanders, Holland and Westphalia to settle in territories that were either empty wasteland or inhabited by hostile Slavic peoples. In many ways, these tracks resemble the westward expansion in the United States in the 19th century. The counts, bishops and margraves who controlled the lands in the east sent out agents, so-called locators, to recruit settlers willing to go east. The locators organized the transport and, once the settlers had arrived, allocated each an equally sized strip of land to cultivate. Sometimes the land needed to be first drained, dikes being built or forest had to be cleared. In other cases, the settlers took over villages where the Slavic population had been expelled or they were given land next to existing settlements. Now, One of the magnates who was most active in this process of colonization was the Count of Holstein, Adolf of Schauenburg and his successors, who had the decency to be all called Adolf, which makes life easier for your podcaster. Now, This process of settling people from the west in their lands was however not limited to the establishment of villages and the development of fields. There was also a big drive to establish or expand cities. There are four different types of city foundations in inverted commas. The first one was simply to establish a city from scratch in a suitable location. But that was actually a quite rare occurrence. As one would imagine, after hundreds of years of settling in the area, the Slavic peoples had already identified and occupied the most attractive sites for their cities. So there would usually be at least a Slavic fortification already there. Sometimes the lord of this fortification would invite tradesmen and merchants to establish a separate town nearby. These towns would have separate fortifications and its population was often a mix of Slavs, Germans and Scandinavians. And then we have the situation where an existing town changed from Slavic to Saxon control and its population and infrastructure would be completely altered. For instance, Oldenburg and Holstein had been the main town of the Wagria. So just as an aside, I've called them Wagrarians in the last episode, which I understand is simply wrong. So apologies. In German, they're called Wagria and in English, I will now call them by their Germanified name, Wagria. In any event, they will soon exit stage left, so it's a bit late for that. 
Oldenburg and Holstein had been taken over by the Saxons when the Vagria had been comprehensively defeated in 1143 and the town was taken over. Churches were built and settlers were invited to move into the city, marginalizing the original population. Then, at last but not least, you have the double and triple cities. That means the original settlement remains its own entity. Then, say, a town of German merchants is established next to it. Shortly afterwards, the bishop sets up his compound with cathedral and bishop's palace. Again, not connected to the other two townships. It was a bit like Budapest and Oboda in Hungary, where there had been separate cities until they were joined together as Budapest in 1873. The story of Lübeck is a mishmash of all these four processes. Now, you're well aware that there had already been a place called Lubice, long before the Counts of Holstein were even thought of. Founded in 819 by the Abodrites, who had been invited to settle there by Charlemagne. Lubice was built on a peninsula formed by the Trave and Schwartau rivers, a few kilometers downriver from where Lübeck is today, and nine kilometers from the mouth of the river. Lubice was off to a good start. A road was built south to Bardewick, linking Lubice to the emerging trade network inside the empire. Archaeologists have found evidence that Lubice had trade connections all across the Baltic Sea. However, by the 10th century the settlement had shrunk and may even have been abandoned. Recovery set in during the middle of the 11th century when Gottschalk had new fortifications and a church built. His son, Henry, the prince of the Abodrites, would make Lubice his main residence, from where he controlled a territory stretching from Rügen to Holstein. Henry built not just large fortifications, but he also invited merchants to settle. The trade route south to Bardovic and north onto the Baltic was resurrected. But after Henry had died and the land of the Abodrites descended into chaos and civil war, Lubice was burned to the ground by some Slavs in 1138. As we heard last week, the Vagrians had been defeated and moved into reservations in 1143, and that same year Adolf of Schauenburg realized that if he could rebuild the trade network of old Lubice, he would make a nice ward of cash and tolls and duties. Upon closer inspection, it became clear that the location of old Lubice was not ideal, or more precisely, that there was a more promising location a bit further upriver. This new location at the confluence of the Trave and the Vakenitz was not only large enough to hold a sizable city, it also had the great advantage of being part of the Count's personal property. He built a castle in the north of the peninsula and established a merchant city with a marketplace a bit south from there. This settlement was, again, an immediate success. It is quite likely that the merchants who had lived in Lubici before its destruction in 1138 moved into this new location. But who also came were the merchants who used to trade out of Bardowick. Since Lübeck was now a city under the protection of a Saxon count, not a Slavic prince, there was no need for a separate trading post on the Saxon-Slavic border. The success of this new city also became its downfall. Bardowick was part of the personal property of the Duke of Saxony, Henry the Lion, and as Bardowick's trade and its people disappeared off to the upstart town of the Count of Holstein, the Duke found himself short of cash. The once plentiful tolls and market fees of Bardewick had not just disappeared, but are now finding their way into the Count's purse. And that cannot be. Remember that the Counts of Holstein had been enfiefed by Lothar when he was Duke of Saxony. Now the new Duke of Saxony is his grandson, the selfsame Henry the Lion, who just lost a neat little income stream. Henry the Lion 
pulls rank. He suggests to Adolf of Schaunburg that they should share the income from this new city. And as we are talking sharing things, why don't you hand over the lucrative salt mine in Oldesloe as well? That the Count refused, assuming quite rightly that if he had agreed, he would lose his share of Lübeck soon enough. At that point, Henry the Lion took out the big guns and prohibited the market in Lübeck, forced all merchants to bring their wares to Badovic. And this edict was effective. Lübeck emptied out almost as quickly as it had grown up, and in 1157 the remaining buildings caught fire, after which the location was abandoned. Now the citizens who had stayed in Lübeck went to Henry the Lion and said that, given they weren't allowed to hold a market in Lübeck, and there was hence no point in rebuilding the city, would he be so kind to designate a place where they could hold a market and live? Henry the Lion tried one more time to convince the Count to hand him the now empty and devastated city of Lübeck, but he still refused. So Henry established the Lion's Town, somewhere upriver on the Wagnitz. And that is where the citizens of Lübeck moved. But they quickly found that this location was not suitable. The larger trading ships could not get up the Wagnitz River, and it even proved difficult to set up good defences. So Henry went back to his count, and this time, in exchange for some fine gold, the count handed over the site of Lübeck. So in 1159, the merchants, tradesmen and other inhabitants returned and, for the third time in 20 years, rebuilt their town. The bishopric of Oldenburg was moved to Lübeck and Henry the Lion granted its city's rights. From then, the city grows at an astounding pace and by 1300 it was the second largest city in the kingdom. Only the mighty and ancient city of Cologne was bigger. How was that possible? Lübeck was on the Traube River, a river that connected to the still largely empty set of interconnected lakes of Holstein, Mecklenburg and Brandenburg, but not to any of the great centres of trade and commerce of the south. Downriver was the Baltic Sea, a sea whose trade was dominated by Scandinavians, in particular the inhabitants of Gotland. Lübeck was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but in the Duchy of Saxony, a part where the new emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, had not enough influence to protect the burghers against the overreach of the magnates. So, what was the secret? For Fritz Röhrig, 1882-1952, the conclusion was evident. The German merchants in Lübeck were simply smarter and just better than their competitors. They designed a new kind of ship. The cock that could take larger loads was made from sawn rather than split timber, hence cheaper to build and was easier to steer than the Knar, the preferred vessel of the Danish traders. And then, according to Röhrig, they were simply better organized. Rurik put forward a thesis that the third rebuilding of Lübeck was organized by a consortium of Rhenish and Westphalian merchants. They had been given free reign by Henry the Lion to create the city layout and set the laws for the new settlement. Though you still find this and other of his hypotheses even in relatively recent books, most of it is now debunked. Cogs have been around since the 10th century and were known to all the peoples along the Baltic and North Sea coast. In any event, these designs were relatively easy to copy, so if there would have been some material advantage in the Lübeck Kong, competitors could and did copy them. As for the legendary planning consortium, there's simply no evidence for it anywhere. 
Rurik based his theory on the names of families living on the main square by the Marienkirche in the 14th century. And finally, Rurik has become the subject of an intense debate over his affiliation with Nazi ideology. Clearly, the idea of German clever cogs fit very neatly into the fascist worldview. So, if it wasn't clever cogs, was it the involvement of the great Duke Henry the Lion? For a long time, German historians praised Henry the Lion for a deliberate policy to sponsor and strengthen the development of cities in Germany. I mean, after all, he is the founder of Munich, and arguably of Lübeck, but more recent biographies, like the one by Joachim Ehlers, suggest that there was really no great master plan. And why would there be? Medieval rulers rarely sat down to strategize with their chancellors or major vassals, and they certainly did not leave behind any strategy papers. Decisions were often driven by who was in the room at any given time, sometimes with long-lasting and devastating effects. Just think of the citizens of Lodi, who were bringing their grievance before Barbarossa in 1153, simply because they happened to travel through Constance. And Barbarossa's decision kicks off his involvement in Lombardy, and it also determined the imperial position against Milan. But not having a grand plan does not mean actions cannot have great impact. We hear that Henry the Lion sent messages to Denmark, Sweden, Norway and Russia, personally guaranteeing that the merchants from there would enjoy his protection should they sail to Lübeck. He also established a mint and a customs post and granted the city the freedoms that many other great trading places like Cologne, Dortmund and Soest enjoyed. The set of rights and privileges for Lübeck, the Stadtrechte, were modelled on those of the city of Soest, at this time one of the most important trading hubs on the route from the Rhineland and Flanders to the north and east. How important the support of Henry the Lion was became apparent as early as 1161. In that year, the merchants from Gotland and Lübeck had a major falling out. What about is unclear, but it was Henry the Lion who resolved the issue by guaranteeing the Gotlanders safety and freedom to come to Lübeck whilst at the same time demanding protection for his merchants when they are in Gotland. There had been German merchants present in Gotland before 1161, but after that we are here of a veritable German trading city springing up in Visby. In the middle of the 12th century, the island of Gotland, today part of Sweden and located halfway up the Baltic Sea, had been the center of northern European trade for literally hundreds of years. It had its origins in a great shift in European trading routes during the 8th century. As the Mediterranean had come under Muslim control, goods from Byzantium, destined for northern Europe, had to be shipped via the great eastern European river system from the Black Sea to the Baltic coast. Novgorod became the great Baltic port from where the goods were then shipped along the Swedish coast to Gotland and then to either the Danish port in Haithabu, near modern-day Schleswig, where they crossed the Jutland Peninsula by land, or further up the Limsfjord, which allowed ships to get into the North Sea without having to round the Skagerrak. Gotland not only provided a safe harbour en route, but also provided the ships on which the goods travelled. Archaeologists have found literally thousands of Byzantine coins in Gotland. So by the middle of the 12th century, the trade with Byzantium via Russia and Ukraine had slowed down dramatically. The eastern luxury wares were now travelling via Egypt and Venice to France, England and Germany. But there were still goods from Russia in high demand. Fur was of particular interest as well as honey and beeswax. 
enterprising merchants from Lübeck appear in Novgorod in the 1170s, apparently in large enough numbers that Henry the Lion signs trading agreements with the Prince of Novgorod. That way, the Gotlanders are cut out of the trade and Lübeck gained direct access to the lucrative Russia trade. And Henry helped the city of Lübeck in another way. As you may remember from last episode, the Wendish Crusade ended in a resounding meh. The Abodrites had remained pagan despite some proforma conversions and a peace agreement between Niklod, the prince of the Abodrites, and the Saxon nobles. As far as Henry the Lion was concerned, this was an unsatisfactory outcome. As Duke of Saxony, he was also in charge of the Mark of the Billungs, that territory we now know as Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. But as long as Niklod ruled, he had little influence in these lands. In fact, the Counts of Holstein had closer relationships with Niklod than he, Henry the Lion. So in 1160 he finally found time to resolve what he regarded as a problem. He called all his vassals, Saxons and Slavs, to an assembly in July 1160. As Niklod did not regard himself as a vassal, he did not show. And that was the justification Henry needed. He announced Niklod to be an unfaithful follower and called for a campaign in the autumn. Niklod tried again to preempt the attack and made an attempt to destroy Lübeck, which had only been rebuilt the year before. That attempt, however, failed. Henry's campaign was well organized, and he arrived with such overwhelming force that Niklod vacated all forward defenses and sealed himself into his largest fortress at Verle. There he was besieged by Henry the Lion. Niklod led a desperate attempt at breaking the siege during which he was captured. His severed head was paraded to Henry's tent. Upon the news of their father's death, the sons of Niklod, Pribislav and Verislav, burned the castle in Verle and disappeared into the woods. Henry immediately reorganized the land of the Abodrites. Other than in previous campaigns, this was not a raid. Henry intended to fully incorporate the land of the Abodrites into his duchy. He placed his ministeriales and minor vassals into key positions as counts of Quetzin, Malchow, Ilo and Schwerin. I guess only the latter name means something to you. Schwerin is today the capital of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern and site of one of the most photographed castles in Germany. I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times in tourist guidebooks or on Facebook posts. What you may not know is that the enormous statue that towers over the main gate of the castle depicts none other than our friend, the now headless Niklot. Why is there a statue of Niklot in Schwerin? Didn't I just say that Schwerin was given to one of Henry the Lion's vassals, an enemy of Niklot? Well, that has to do with the second part of this story. The sons of Niklot had escaped, and as part of the post-war settlement were giving their destroyed castle of Verle back. But that was clearly not enough for them. They came back in 1163 to regain their ancestral land, supported by the Duke of Pomerania. Now, we'll talk about Pomerania in more detail soon, so just leave it here that the Duke of Pomerania was a Slavic ruler based east of the land of the Abodrites. The brothers waged a brutal campaign, directed in particular at the German settlers Henry's men had called to live in this new territory. Pribislav burned down Mecklenburg, killing everybody there, and moved on to the castle of Ilo. There he hoped the Slavic population inside the castle would help him. However, the German commander had all the Slavic women and children brought before him 
and threatened to burn them as a last act should Pribislav overcome the walls. So Pribislav was unable to take this castle, but he was successful in Kretzin and Malchow, where he promised the garrison free retreat if they surrender immediately. Only Schwerin was still held by Henry the Lion when he appeared in Malchow in 1164. He had mustered a fresh army and has secured the help of King Valdemar I of Denmark. To show how serious he took all this, he had the brother of Pribislav hanged for all the defenders to see. The early morning of the 6th of July 1164, the army of the Saxons and Danes is woken by squires running into the camp announcing the arrival of the Slavs. Rising from their beds without time to put on armor or mount their horses, the Saxons faced up to Pribislav and his allies. Count Adolf of Holstein and Count Reinhold of Dithmarschen tried to hold the gate of the camp, but were overthrown and trampled into the dust. Their sacrifice did, however, allow two other counts to muster 300 armored knights who rode at full tilt into the camp, breaking the Slavs' attack. When Henry the Lion finally appeared on the battlefield, the fighting was almost over. The Saxons had won, but at a horrendous price. Henry and his much-diminished force followed the enemy to Pomerania, but did not force them beyond Stolpe. Henry claimed that he had to go back as a delegation from the Emperor of Constantinople had arrived in Brunswick. Yeah, absolutely. That is the reason to leave. Henry and Valdemar signed peace agreements with Pribislav, the Pomeranian Duke and other Slavic lords. As a result of this peace, the Danish king gained several vassals in Pomerania, whilst Henry was put back to the status quo ante. Pribislav was even allowed back onto his castle in Werle. In 1167, as Henry the Lion is getting under pressure from the other Saxon magnates, he enters into an alliance with Pribislav. Pribislav formally converts to Christianity and becomes a vassal of Henry the Lion. In exchange, Pribislav becomes the Prince of Mecklenburg, Kessin and Rostock. His descendants regain Schwerin in 1358 and make it their capital. They rebuild the castle in a weird and wonderful mixture of styles between 1822 and 1851. The great statue of Niklot was added in 1855, still waving his sword in the general direction of Lübeck. Because the great beneficiary of all this malarkey was Lübeck. Finally, the city was no longer surrounded by hostile Slavic peoples who had attempted and sometimes succeeded in burning down the city at least four times in the last 40 years. Instead, their neighbors are now followers of their great benefactor, the Duke Henry the Lion. So, to go back to our initial question, why did Lübeck grow to become the second largest city in the kingdom? Arguably, Henry the Lion had something to do with it. But making sure you can travel safely across the Baltic and being protected from attack by immediate neighbors when necessary by not sufficient conditions for the astounding expansion of the city on the Trave River. The next big leg did not come from a German, but from a Dane. In 1180, Henry the Lion had lost the Duchy of Saxony, not really because of his refusal to support the Emperor Barbarossa, but more because of strong opposition amongst the other Saxon magnates. There were namely the Ascania, the descendants of Albrecht de Baer, and then the Archbishop of Cologne, who would split the old duchy amongst themselves. And as we know, Barbarossa did not gain much in this final dismemberment of the mightiest of German duchies. Well, except for one thing. 
the city of Lübeck. Lübeck had initially supported Henry the Lion, but when the emperor appeared with his army before the walls, they had second thoughts. They surrendered and Barbarossa made Lübeck an imperial fief. And that gave Lübeck an elevated status as a free imperial city. Plus, because Barbarossa and his successors were spending most of their time down south, the Lübecker could pretty much do whatever they wanted. In 1201, they did even go so far as to falsify the charter Barbarossa had given them, adding a few more rights and privileges they fancied. And that document they later presented to Frederick II, who reissued the charter confirming all the sorts of entitlements they never actually had. But before all that happens, something else has been going on. And that has to do with the golden age of the Valdemars. Denmark had faded into the background in our narrative, largely because the country had spent almost 50 years in a constant succession crisis. They went through eight kings who spent most of their time fighting cousins or half-brothers for the throne and usually died a violent death. This civil war ended with King Valdemar I, the Great, 1154-1182, who brought peace to the kingdom, thanks at least partially to the good offices of his best friend Absalon, the Bishop of Roskilde. Valdemar was the son of Knud Lavard, who we had met in passing when he was Prince of the Abodrites for a very brief period. Now, this is not the place to go through all of his achievements. If you want more detail, go to the Scandinavian History Podcast. What matters for us here is that Valdemar gained a foothold in the land of the Abodrites during Henry the Lion's campaign of 1160. Other than Henry, Valdemar remained engaged in the Wendish lands. In the 1170s, he invades and occupies Rügen. Then he extends his power to Pomerania. And then there's his son, Valdemar II, the Victorious, who builds on his father's success. He is massively helped by the succession crisis that is now engulfing the empire, when Philip of Swabia and Otto IV fight over the crown. Valdemar sides with Otto IV and attacks Holstein, whose count, we are now at Adolf III, had sided with Philip. At the Battle of Stellau in 1201, Adolf is defeated and captured. In captivity, he renounces the county of Holstein and is released. He goes home to Schaunburg, never to return. Now, Holstein was now Danish, as was Hamburg, which Valdemar had occupied after one of his cousins and a claimant to the Danish throne had become its archbishop. In 1216, he then becomes also Duke of Pomerania, courtesy of Emperor Frederick II. And Lübeck. Lübeck recognized Valdemar in 1201, as soon as the Count of Holstein had lost his battle. And Valdemar became a great supporter of the city. He confirmed the city's rights and privileges, the ones that they had all made up by themselves. And we hear that the city now has a council that determines its affairs, passes its laws and judgments. But not only that, Valdemar helps Lübeck citizens to set up another trading post within the city of Riga that he had just conquered during one of the earliest Baltic Crusades. And that again boosts the city's trade with Russia. And then there's the herring trade. Now given that lay piety had been on the rise for a century or more, the population of Europe took to eating fish on Fridays. But where do you get enough fish to feed, say, a city like Cologne or Regensburg, that are a long way from the sea? The answer was salted or dried fish. And one of the richest fishing grounds in Europe was Scania in southern Sweden. 
the herring who came through there had to be salted to be preserved, and that is where the traders from Lübeck come in. They are bringing the salt from the rich salt mines in Lüneburg, Salzwedel and Aldersloh to Scania and take away the salted fish to sell down south. Which gets you to the billion-dollar question. Why did Waldemar, who at that point controlled Scania and Lübeck, allowed that trade to happen. Because Denmark already had a great trading city, Heiterbu, which by now had migrated to Schleswig. Why not use this harbour, unload the herring, transport it across the Jutland Peninsula and put it back on a ship. And that ship then takes a fish down the Rhine and the Main River to the landlocked masses craving their Friday fish. It's one of those questions which we have no real answer. All that we know is that during the reign of Waldemar, more and more trade is diverted from Schleswig to Lübeck. One reason I could explain the relative decline of Schleswig could be the closing of the Limfjord. If you look on the map, you can see that just at the top of the Jutland Peninsula is a system of lakes and rivers that allows boats to pass from the North Sea to the Baltic without having to go through the Skagerrak, the dangerous narrows at the entrance of the Baltic Sea. Now this connection is open today, and was open until the 12th century. Just around the time we find Lübeck ascending, the Limfjord closes. Though I understand most of Schleswig's trade was by land across the peninsula, some of it may have been seaborne, destined to go via the Limfjord. That may have been what made Schleswig that little bit more attractive, and its loss made it more of a straight fight. Now the other advantage the Danish merchants had was privileged access to the English market. When Knut had been king of England, Danish traders were granted the same rights as local merchants, paying the same fees in market and the same duties. Foreigners normally paid more. But when Lübeck became part of Denmark, these privileges extended to them and hey presto, another relative advantage of Schleswig was gone. So, by the middle of the 13th century, Lübeck had grown so much it now occupied the whole of the river island. Beautiful furs are coming in from Russia, beeswax and honey from Novgorod, amber from Prussia, fish from Scania and now rye and wheat from the Baltic shores. All these are bought by Lübeck merchants and sold on to their end customers. The goods are taken off the cocks they came on and transported by road to the Elbe River, either down to Lüneburg or to Hamburg. Then they are again put on a ship neither go north along the North Sea coast to the mouth of the Rhine River to Flanders or to England. Or they go south on the Elbe to Magdeburg, where then loaded on carts and go on to the Hellweg, which connects across Westphalia from Paderborn via Soest and Dortmund to Duisburg, where one can find shipping to Cologne or further south. But the trade isn't just one way. Cloth from Flanders, wool from England, wine from the Rhine and Mosul, weapons and metal goods from all over Germany come up on the way back. Lübeck ends up in the middle of all of this and becomes richer and richer. In 1227, Lübeck again ditches its master, who had lost a crucial battle against the Saxons. From then on, the city remains free and independent, able to join others in what we call the Hanseatic League. But before we get into the meat of the story of the Hanseatic League, we still have to finish off the story of the Duchy of Saxony. So next week, we'll spend a bit of time on the Margraviate of Brandenburg, 
how it came about and why this time the Slavic rulers do not found the dynasty that rules it. And, if I'm well organized, we will get into at least half of the story of Henry the Lion. I hope you'll come along for the ride. And before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who've kindly signed up on patreon.com slash history of the Germans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>